let's face it, retailers who sell suck. And retailers who solve problems and do it in a friendly, interested way and do it better than anyone else, those are the people who build a dynasty. Well, hello there. This is Milena, and welcome to another episode of Scientific Mavericks Podcast. This episode is a part of Business Focus series where we bring to you business leaders and experts in the retail space. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Hyvory. Hyvory is the pioneer of hyperlocal retailing, combining artificial intelligence, operations research, and human-centered design models to help CPGs and retailers generate an increased return on physical retail space investment. And today, it is my great pleasure to introduce Flora Delaney, the president of Delaney Consulting. Flora has been in retail consulting space since 2005, and prior to that, she had executive positions with Best Buy, Ahold, Musicland, AC Nielsen, and Helene Curtis. Flora specializes in category management and merchandising, with particular focus on space management, brick-and-mortar concept development and design, as well as reinvigoration of stores. So, we'll kick this episode off with Flora sharing what her journey has been like to get her where she is today, that is, running her own business in the consulting space. A lot of people ask me, like, how do you get to be where you are? And I'm not certain that there's a very straight line journey to get to be in this space of consulting. My career began in what is today considered customer insights and marketing research with Nielsen. And that gave me such a great perspective on the consumer packaged goods industry and all that they need. From there, I went to Helene Curtis, which is now a division of Unilever, and I was among the very first people to build out a space management team. So I remember when there was Spaceman 1.0 for DOS and Apollo 1.0 and when JDA was in tactics and before that intercept. So I really started to learn how to work in this merchandising space. And at the time, it was working on how to help sell to retailers until I made the decision to go across the desk and become one of the retailers. And I took a lot of different assignments. I did not stay focused on one particular function. So I had assignments in category management, in IT, in merchandising and buying, in pricing. And that gave me just a really broad perspective of everything it takes to succeed in retail and the ability to see issues from multiple angles. And because I didn't build a career that was rooted in one function alone, I started to see the connections of how a decision in one area of retail will affect downstream areas or other aligned functions. And that really helped me as I made the decision to go into consulting. Mm -hmm. So if we sort of take a step back and look at the broader picture, and that is the retail industry as a whole, you have published a book titled Retail, the Second Oldest Profession. Can you tell me what the book is about and who is it intended for? 
thank you for bringing up my book. Yes, retail, the second oldest profession, I thought was a clever name, but then I realized it didn't really talk about what I wanted to say, which is that there are seven timeless principles that every retailer needs to master to really succeed in the space. It's one of the things that I learned early on as I worked with multiple clients was that there are always these same connections over and over and over, whether you have 9,500 stores or 17 stores or one store, there are just these certain fundamentals that you have to understand really, really well. And so what I did was I wrote this book with the intent that my audience would be someone who works in retail. Now, they might be somebody who works in a store or they might be somebody who works at the corporate headquarters, but they have a limited amount of time and they've got a problem. So the thing is, I don't want them to think that they have to read the book in sequential order. So if their issue of the day is, I just can't find good people to hire, they can turn right away to the chapter on managing, look at and read maybe the 15 minutes it takes to read my section on hiring. And then every single area, and there's over 70 of them in the book, are meant to be read in about 15 minutes, so your average break on retail. And then they end with something that person can go out and do immediately. Awesome. So you mentioned that there are seven timeless principles that retailers need to master. Can you tell me more about them? So what I'm saying is that in every situation, you have to be really great or at least as good as your competitors in all of these areas. And it starts with strategy, which is really why do you exist? What is the point of being in business? What is it that you provide to your customers? And how do you make sure that you have a cohesive experience? Retailers who fail often fail because they lose their focus on their strategy. So whether it's Walmart's strategy of always the low price or my little local Edina liquor store who has a strategy of pouring its profits back into the community, the strategy is the core of everything that a retailer does and everything emanates from the strategy. If you're strong with your strategy, it's so much easier to make all of your day-to-day decisions. After that, to me, the next thing that is really critical and what is so missing and yet drives so much customer loyalty is customer service. That to me is the most important next thing, you know, and it doesn't matter whether you're e-commerce or brick and mortar, every store has to make their customers feel acknowledged and appreciated and the center of their operation because Let's face it, retailers who sell suck and retailers who solve problems and do it in a friendly, interested way and do it better than anyone else. Those are the people who build a dynasty. And by the way, I would like to offer your listeners for free my chapter on customer service because to me it is just so important. So if they'd like to get a chapter on customer service free from my book, All they have to do is go to my website, which is floradelaney.com, and they can request that chapter and they'll get it the very same day. You know, some of these other things like merchandising and pricing and marketing 
those are hard to do and you can't just change your trajectory overnight. But with customer service, you really can start seeing immediate changes once you start focusing on it. So the other things are merchandising, going out and selecting and curating the perfect assortment for your customers, pricing, which uh, is probably the most geeky, the most analytic, the most data-driven part of the fundamentals, and yet surprisingly is often done out of habit and kind of standard rules as opposed to actually letting the data take them where they should go with pricing. Marketing, you know, to me, marketing is as simple as inviting customers to your store or e-commerce site and then welcoming them back when they return, right? How is a retailer supposed to be a wonderful host or hostess who throws amazing parties you always want to go to? To me, that seems like a good analogy for what great retail marketing should be. When I go to a great party, the things I get excited about is that I never know who I'm going to see there, but I know they're going to be interesting. I know the food's going to be good. I know we're going to have a good time. I know I'm going to remember it in the future. And in a way, that's kind of what you want to have at your retail events. You want people to remember it. You want people to have a good time. You want them to have things that surprise them. You know, something we always call the treasure hunt of retail. Whether you're online or in a store, there should be this sense of, I came to the store because I wanted something in particular. I knew I could count on this store having, but then when I got there, I saw all this other stuff and it was just so cool or intriguing or such a great deal or fashionable, whatever it is that I couldn't help myself. I had to buy it. That's an amazing retail event. And then the other parts are really managing and operations, which is really about managing. It's how do you find and develop and keep great talent? How do you help people reach their goals? And how do you build a team that can operate and thrive when the leaders are not in the room, when the store manager is not in the store, when the executive leaders are at an offsite and yet everything continues to operate and hum along just fine. And operations to me is really kind of the, how do you do this all as efficiently as possible so that you can hold down costs and continue to deliver value and really smooth operations to your customers, right? And of course, right now, during COVID and everything, it's operations that's just getting hammered, right? So it's really, really hard to run an efficient supply chain and deliver to your customers' expectations in the current situation. It's interesting that you mentioned the current events because I was just thinking that by definition, these principles are timeless. So it would make them even more relevant in the time of change that we are experiencing today. If you were to say that there is only one area all retailers should be now focusing on, what would that area be out of these seven principles? Well, I think that every retailer needs to understand that they probably disappoint a significant group of their customers in customer service. I think that 
it is such a rare experience for people that they're truly delighted and treated as individuals and have their problems solved and have a delightful experience that they go off and tell other people about. So I think it's customer service. And that doesn't just mean saying, hello, can I help you find something today? Which usually gets delivered about that flatly in a store. It really is about having conversations, looking people in the eye, helping to build a relationship. When someone asks you for something, take them over to where that item is and talking about what their other selections might be, as opposed to just saying, oh, that's in aisle five, right? And I think customer service shows up online as well. Um, Many of us allow ourselves to be treated like a credit card, like a transaction online. And what I find really interesting is things like Stitch Fix, for example, which is saying, hey, I'm going to get to know you. I'm going to have a stylist who understands what you like. We're going to send you things that have been curated for you. And then if you don't like them, you can send them back and we will learn more about your tastes, about your size, about your favorite colors, what have you. And we'll continue to get better and better at serving you. All of these retailers are claiming that they have AI in the background that are learning individual customer tastes so they can amp up their individual customer service. I mean, that's a really interesting example of how a retailer is taking the idea of online retail and melding it with outstanding customer service to build out their dynasty. So how can retailers that majorly rely on offline channels implement these kind of practices? Well, that's what I love about the timeless principles, right? It doesn't matter if you're a brick and mortar shoe store or if you're an online cosmetic store. It doesn't matter what kind of store you are. All of these things are still going to be super critical to you. Everyone has to have merchandise that they sell. And you don't have to go down the path of a Walmart or something that says, I'm going to carry everything for everyone across every category. Some folks say the riches are in the niches. And there's a lot of retailers out there who are focused on a very select curated assortment for their particular customer. Or they're working on pricing. And to me, pricing does not necessarily have to always mean the lowest price. Price is a value equation, and for some customers, there's a value in a $1,200 cashmere sweater. So, you know, if you're shopping on guild.com, for example, you're not there to find a deal. You're there to get access to hard-to-find designer styles, and you're willing to spend the pricing on that. So the thing about online retail or any retailer, is that they still have to figure out how are they going to become accomplished in each of these seven timeless principles to succeed. They all have to figure out marketing. They all have to figure out merchandising and operations, even if their operation is how do they beautifully box up a order that was taken online so that their customers have this wonderful unboxing experience, right? One very simple example of that that I'm always tickled by 
is here in the US, there's a company called Penzi's Spices. And Penzi's is a very um, socially active company. So they don't just sell, you know, salt and pepper and rosemary and parsley and things like that. They also have a very strong agenda when it comes to social activism. And when you order online, you're likely when you open up that box to find all kinds of bumper stickers and magnets and little doodads that they throw in there that just always continues to support the causes they care about and the social issues that they believe their customers care about. And they're right on the money. They're appealing to the right customer and they continue to engage with that customer all the way down through something as boring as operations in the fact that they always make sure that when they box up a shipment, that there's these little extras for their customers when they open them. You brought up a bit earlier that operations right now is getting hammered across all retailers. What are some other pressing issues and challenges that you think retailers are facing right now? And right now means not just in the pandemic world and in the current events that we have been experiencing for the past few months, but perhaps over the last few years. One of the things that we're seeing is over the past few years, every single Cyber Monday, Black Friday, every single season, we see more and more shoppers who are very happy to order online and have their items delivered to their home. We were starting to see more ordering online and pick up at store. Like those were long-term trends we all saw and retailers across the globe were starting to grapple with and try to figure out how do they solve it. But those were all considered kind of long-term initiatives that were going to have long-term solutions provided to them. And with the pandemic and COVID, there has suddenly been this enormous acceleration in what customers expect for buy online, pick up in-store, pick up curbside, or deliver to my home. And suddenly, I think the acceleration of all of those initiatives across the board for retailers has really shaken up a lot of IT roadmaps a lot of planned initiatives across the board for marketing and operations and certainly in store operations and even so much as store layout and design. I certainly am seeing, for example, retailers who are suddenly starting to grapple with where are they going to stage all of these orders that they're pulling from the store and put them in a place where they can be securely ready for when the customer pulls up to the front door and asks for their order. It's not a big deal if what you're talking about is everything can be stored room temperature in a locked area. But when you're talking about grocery stores, for example, where part of the order is room temperature, part of the order is refrigerated, part of the order is frozen, how do they make sure that they can manage all that, that's a whole new level of operational excellence that most retailers were not prepared for. So I think that 
while these trends were certainly predicted, the speed at which they're coming at the retailers was not. And so they are really struggling with how to make sure that they are ready for this holiday season where we expect an enormous percentage of orders to come through online and that there be home delivery. The other thing that I think is a big trend that this has started to escalate is the continual war for the customer. And it's waged between consumer packaged goods brands and retailers. Who owns the customer? Who has the relationship with the customer? You could make an argument that while Foot Locker is the retailer that is selling the Nikes, Nike would argue, well, the only reason your customers go into your stores is so that they can buy my Nikes. I'm the one who's bringing your customers to your stores, not you. And you see that all the way down to now suddenly during the pandemic, people seem quite happy to be able to start to create a relationship with some brands to say, I'm going to order cases, for example, of Hint water here in the United States, which is like a flavored water that normally you would go to a grocery store or a Target or a Walmart or something to purchase. And now Hint is saying, hey, if you want to order cases of water, we'll deliver it straight to your house. And basically what they're doing is cutting out the retailer Mm -hmm. and customers are saying, I'm fine with that. You know, I don't care who delivers to my house. I don't care if I'm ordering it through a retailer or through a manufacturer, as long as I get my product. And I think that could be tremendously upsetting to what a lot of retailers have always presumed, which is that customers will come to me to buy their consumables, especially their basics, right? I'm talking about 40 pound bags of dog food or toothpaste and laundry detergent and shampoo, all the things that you kind of run through all the time and buy almost on a habitual basis. More and more customers are saying, hey, if I can get a subscription model where I save a certain percentage and I can count on that all the time, I don't need to go to a store or even go to a store's website to buy this. I'll just set up a subscription and have it delivered to my door. That's going to tremendously upset and change what retailers are actually able to provide. Because if customers don't need to go to retailers to just get their basic consumables, if they can have those needs met some other way, then retailers need to rethink and reimagine what is it that they bring to customers that customers should come to them to their websites or to their brick and mortar stores for. Again, I'm going to suggest outstanding customer service is a big part of it. And the delight and surprise. To me, those are things that retailers can continue to deliver to customers better than anyone if they stay focused on it. Absolutely. And I think that goes hand in hand with the space management boom. And that's exactly one of the areas of focus that you have. And especially with the current events, making it even more relevant. So a store is way beyond shelves and fixtures and lights and stock and merchandise. How does a retailer create a store? What makes it a store? How does a retailer make an experience for the consumer? 
I think that all begins with a strong foundation in that first retail principle of strategy, right? Retailers have just got to have a strategy that they can deliver on and they have to stay unswervingly focused on what their strategy is to be meaningful in the market. And then they have to build a cohesive experience around that. It's very easy if you have a strong strategy and a strong idea of who your customer is at the center of that strategy and a clear view of why that customer is going to prefer to shop with you. So let me give you an example. If you're Walmart and your strategy is always the low price, always, your strategy is saying my customer cares most about getting the most they can out of every dollar they spend. And therefore, as I start thinking about how will I build a store around that strategy, it's pretty easy to make decisions about what kind of fixtures and what kind of lighting and what kind of environment am I creating for them? Because the answer is always going to come back to what can I do for the least amount of money so that I can pass on the most amount of savings to my customers? I'm going to have very low end needs as far as design goes. I'm going to have pretty generic fixtures with fluorescent tube lighting, with low cost flooring, And I'm not going to put a lot of money into the design of my stores because that doesn't help me deliver against my strategy to my customers. And if you compare that then to when you know the strategy for, let's say, Williams-Sonoma or Sur la Table, which is sort of, I am focused on a kitchenware customer who wants to be an at-home chef who really loves to entertain, wants to cook elevated foods, I know how to build a store or an e-commerce site around that. I'm going to surround that person with lovely items that are professional quality. I'm not going to bring in opening price point items. I'm going to give them a wonderful experience and an opportunity to sample and taste and smell food when they walk into my store. I'm going to inspire them to purchase ingredients and sauces and very high-end pots and pans and knives and gadgets. And I'm going to give them lovely seasonal serveware at Easter. It's very easy to make your decisions around how to build a store experience When you have a very clear view of who your customer is and a very clear view of what your strategy is of how you want to go to market and beat your competitors. To an extent, just from the observations that I have made, I think there is a shift from always low price point type of retailers to more customized service and personalization type of business, would you agree that there is a trend and that more businesses are shifting towards providing great value to a consumer, regardless of the price point, but rather just delivering an outstanding experience? I think it varies by country. And I can tell you here in the United States, what I'm seeing is a definite bifurcation, a definite fork in the road about how retailers are going to market. There's less and less 
mid price point retailers that are offering something in the mid range for a middle consumer. There is either off price, low price, off brand retailers, the TJ Maxx's of the world and Marshall's and all their different brands that they have on the market, home goods, what have you. And then there is this other end, which is more of the high-end retailer. Let's think about Apple. Let's think about All Saints. Let's think about all these higher price point retailers. And there's less in the middle, the JC Pennies, the Coles, the Macy's, the people who used to play in the middle. In between those two extremes, that's where there's a big decline. And so I think what's interesting is that consumers are starting to show two very different practices within the same consumer. So you will find that there are consumers who will say, I will splurge on a high-end bag from Coach, or I will splurge on great shoes. And then I am the same consumer who will go to Family Dollar or Dollar General and stock up on $1 birthday cards. So what we're seeing is that consumers themselves are really making choices about where they're going to splurge and where they're willing to make other choices to take low priced items. And the retailers who are getting squeezed in the middle of that middle of the road, I'm here for the middle income suburban family. Those retailers are starting to really feel the pinch because consumers seem to be going one way or the other And sometimes it's the same consumer making both choices. Absolutely. And you just mentioned that consumers don't just fall into one lane. You know, we typically do make trade-offs. So if we splurge, uh, I mean, that's the general population, right? (laughs) If we (laughs) splurge on one thing, then it's not a big deal for us to go to calls to buy groceries. So that brings me to the question, how does a retailer get the right products in front of its customers if you can't necessarily just put your customer in a box? Yeah, again, I think it goes back to the fundamental principles of what is your strategy and then what is the merchandise you're going to put behind that strategy? Yes, you've got to have the right marketing and pricing and customer service, of course. But I think merchandise and what you're going to stand for in terms of merchandise is what brings people to your website or your store. And there's really two different kinds of merchandise at the highest, highest level for every retailer. There's going to be the basics the cornerstone categories and items that they're going to be known for day in, day out, and they're always going to have, and customers can rely on them having. And then there's going to be the surprise and delight extras that build a market basket that cause customers to have these impulse purchases that they didn't plan for. So one of the examples I have is, Here in the United States, there's this hardware store, I guess you'd call it, power tools, outdoor tools. It's called Northern Tool and Equipment. And their tagline is made for the weekend warrior. So it's really about these DIY guys who on the weekend are going to build their own deck or build their kids a playhouse or whatever. 
And if you go into a Northern tool, what you're expecting to find is a lot of power tools, a lot of hand tools, a lot of hardware. And yet what they have that is so brilliant is this treasure aisle down the middle main aisle of their store that's just filled with all kinds of guy gadgets. And some of it is like joke t-shirts and these crazy flashlights and a super great deal on bungee cords. And you think, why, why are you putting those down the middle? And yet I can see guys going into that store and they will come out with three, four of those because they thought they were funny and they're going to give them to their buddies or they're going to put them in their truck. They have these giant bottles or jars of peanuts and things like that. And you think, why would a person ever buy eight pounds of peanuts? Well, these guys are driving from job site to job site. They love having that in the front seat of their car or their truck. And so it's interesting to me that no one would ever expect to go to Northern Tool and buy peanuts. And yet there that is. It's like this treasure hunt. And you see the same thing over and over in really successful retailers. They have some merchandise that their customer is going to go there that's going to drive them there. But if they're smart, they have all these other things that end up tickling the customer, making the customer kind of enjoy the experience because I didn't know I could get that. And you see it in Target where when you first walk in, they have their little dollar area that changes out about every two weeks of what is in that area. And people have now made it a habit that they may have come in to buy diapers for their babies or, you know, new socks for their kids or something. But first, they're going to wander through that dollar area and maybe pick up some chalk for their kids to play with outside, or they're going to pick up a decoration for 4th of July or something that they didn't intend to, but they end up purchasing because it's simply either too good a deal to pass up, or it just tickles them and excites them and they make an impulse purchase. And we started this conversation off with talking about challenges that retailers are experiencing. And I think humans in general prefer to focus on challenges and negative things, unfortunately. But let's switch and talk about opportunities. So your book is titled Retail is the Second Oldest Profession. And what disruptive innovation have you observed in the industry over the last few decades or years, I suppose, I think one of the topics specifically that I want to talk about is artificial intelligence, as you have mentioned just in the beginning of our conversation. So can you share how AI has disrupted the industry or is it yet to disrupt it? Yeah, AI is for sure an up and coming trend in retail and Retail is such a wonderful play space for people who want to explore and learn more about artificial intelligence. Because if there's one thing retail has, it's data, right? It's got tons of customers, tons of transactions, tons of products. And so you start looking at all the data that's generated by a retailer on any given week or month, and you have a rich rich playground for artificial intelligence. And I am excited to see what's going to happen there. I'd like to think that it's going to be applied in such a way that it is going to end up really pleasing customers 
that things will get to them now that really make them happy. Our practices in retail are not very customized. Retailers can argue all day long that they do a brilliant job in creating store clusters and being focused on their consumers. But I got to tell you, I live in Minnesota and nothing makes me sadder than when I walk into a store at the end of February when it's about 20 below zero Fahrenheit here and I see sunglasses, flip-flops, and swimsuits because that's the time of year it is down in Texas or Florida and California, but we're still in winter boots and just hoping to get out of our parkas by Easter. And so I don't think retailers do a particularly good job of really customizing and timing and executing a great assortment for their customers that's custom to each customer's needs. And I'm looking forward to when AI will do a much, much better job of predicting what customers want and need. And retailers are able to engage that in a way that they change their operations to provide that to their customers. So one of the areas that I am really excited about that I'm seeing some new technology is in space management. And like I said before, I started out in space management a long time ago, back when this first started to be computerized and digitized. And sadly, I have to say that I have not seen much innovation in the space management space really since Y2K. And that's sad, but the truth is when space management systems started to go towards a relational database and started to be able to be integrated with a lot of other systems, that was around Y2K. And for the most part, every other innovation in space management, in my mind, since then has simply been incrementalism. It's been, oh, let's add on this new layer that now lets you do some script automation And that's great. It is helpful, but it's not revolutionary. Or there's been some innovations in perhaps how we started to look at smart spaces in floor plans, for example. But at the end of the day, the system itself, the backbone and the IT infrastructure that it was all built on has not changed. And what I'm seeing coming And I'm really excited about is how artificial intelligence combined with virtual reality, combined with, you know, some of the things that are coming out of the gaming industry, I think are going to start showing up in space management systems that is going to be tremendously different in just everything about how it's conceived, how it's built and set up and how the experience is for Joe average planogrammer, as well as how that's going to ultimately show up to the customer in stores. I think that area I've been saying for years is rife for a change. It has been stale and stagnant and has not seen a lot of investment. And I think there are some players coming onto the scene who are going to start shaking that up. And I think A lot of young folks who are going to go into this industry, they sit down in front of today's planogramming software or floor planning software, and they're like, oh my gosh, this is so archaic. And we're, I think, going to go into a new world 
where they're going to sit down and they're going to put on a virtual reality headset. They're going to sit down with a joystick. They're going to sit down and perhaps not even have to use that kind of interface, but simply use their a glove on their hands to start actually merchandising the stores, creating planograms that are much more attuned to what individual stores and customers want. And I'm super excited for the innovation I see coming down that way. I think one of the players currently in AI space providing solutions for retailers and CPGs is Hyvery. And I would love to hear from you how you first found out about Hyvery and how your relationship has developed since. And in general, what your thoughts on Hyvery products are. Well, it's kind of funny because I never had heard of Hyvery and I was at a category management conference and was wandering around from booth to booth. You know, they're all the same kind of. They all have their big signs and their fish bowls of candy and their little freebie giveaways that people are going from booth to booth to. And I saw this one booth and it had just a little black and white sign over it that said Hyvery. There was no other sign. There were two guys standing there and they had some business cards on the table. And I thought to myself, okay, these guys are either in way over their heads or they are mighty confident in what they have. So I walked over there and I started talking to them and it turns out that they were mighty confident in what they had, and rightly so, because as they started talking, I got very excited. What they are talking about is a completely integrated assortment and space management function in one, which is so tied together, but in most retailers, there's a group of people who do assortment planning and select products. And there's a group of people who do space management. And there is continual friction between those groups as they try to create this efficient communication and customization. And it's always difficult. And what I saw there was the ability to use AI to customize assortment and space management at the same time and generate custom planograms that are custom to every location and do it very, very fast. That just made me very excited because it seemed to me to be someone who was approaching the problem a different way. Somebody who was saying, hey, you can't just create this cool planogramming tool. You've got to look upstream of that at what is happening with how do you select the right assortment to go to every single location? And then how do you automate that so that the generated output is planograms? Yes, you want to have that so people know what to execute, but let's not spend a lot of time working on building out this huge planogramming platform that you basically need an army of people with very high skills to be able to operate. I thought what they were doing was starting to point us down the right way to go. And another opportunity I think that there is that we have touched on in the beginning of our conversation is the online and offline channels. And we see that businesses are adopting 
both. So what is the importance of having both? Well, I think customers expect to shop the way they want to shop. Someone who says, I am only a brick and mortar retailer is not going to please someone who wants to shop at 3 a.m. from their home or a busy mom who just doesn't have time to get to the store and still needs to get some things and, or pamper herself or what have you. So you have to have both channels to be able to meet the needs of a customer. I also think it's very, very interesting that a lot of our e-commerce online only retailers are starting to actually dabble in brick and mortar. In Austin, Texas, you can go to the first Mod Cloth store. Mod Cloth has always been an online only retailer. And interestingly, even in their store, you cannot actually buy the items that are on the rack. They're there for you to try things on so you can understand how their sizing works so that you can see and feel and touch the quality of their material. But should you select a dress or a blouse or a tops or whatever that you want to purchase from them, you still have to go online to purchase it. I think that's really interesting. Amazon is starting to play with brick and mortar stores and what might be the most ultimate irony ever. Amazon is looking at opening some bookstores. Retailers, whether they are traditionally or a heritage brick and mortar store or heritage online retailer are starting to realize there's benefits to being in both channels because customers want to shop the way they want to shop. And you can't as a retailer say, oh, I'm sorry, that channel just doesn't work for me because you're just going to turn away customers. Earlier in our conversation, we talked about external events like COVID that's happening right now. And it's in a way a disruption and not necessarily a positive one. It's disrupting supply chains, operation side of things. There are so many out of stocks and delays. And ultimately, both customers and businesses are suffering. So what lessons can we learn from these circumstances we all find ourselves in today? And what approaches can retailers take already not to just react to the challenges they face today and wait for the government to announce new policies, but rather be proactive and plan ahead and perhaps develop a strategy that will set them up for success for many years to come. And in case we happen to find ourselves in uncharted waters again. You know, I, I liked what you said earlier about let's not just talk about the negatives. Let's talk about some of the opportunities and positives. And while there's a lot we could focus on that's negative right here about the pandemic and its impact on retail, there are some things that are going to come out of this that... Mm -hmm. I think will benefit retailers and their customers. One of which is there is greater and greater focus and appreciation for local sources, local providers. What we see is that consumers have a deep relationship and if you will love, if you can use that emotion, for their local businesses and their local providers. And so retailers who have perhaps built their entire supply chain out of going overseas to source all their products, 
are now realizing that something as major as a pandemic could cause an incredibly difficult disruption to their supply chain and to their ability to service customers, whereas retailers who have worked very hard to create opportunities for local providers and local suppliers are coming back online a lot faster and are being rewarded by their customers for that. So I think to the degree that retailers can start to take a look at where they're sourcing their products, who are their providers. And I'm not saying they have to be 100% local, but certainly looking at their mix of what percent of their business is coming from overseas versus domestic versus truly hyper-local suppliers is going to happen. And I think we're going to see a bit of a swing back towards working with local suppliers, smaller manufacturers that offer all kinds of wonderful benefits for local communities. Connection to the community is something that retailers are starting to realize they have to do in good times and in bad. They can't just run commercials during bad times and say, we're here for you and have consumers believe them. They truly have to be involved in their local communities. They truly have to be giving back. And the retailers who have are being rewarded by customers. I think the other thing that will be a long-term shift for some retailers is how they've built their supply chain. So customers have demanded that they have a super efficient supply chain. The goal of almost every supply chain is just-in-time inventory, inventory that comes in, doesn't sit in a warehouse, doesn't sit in a distribution center, arrives on our shores and goes directly to a sales floor where it's picked up by customers. And then when that is disrupted, there is no contingency. There's no excess inventory anywhere. And so I think that retailers are going to start looking at how can they build a little bit of redundancy in their distribution channel, in their sourcing, so that when there's a disruption, it's easy for them to shift to a secondary source and those disruptions don't show up as big out-of-stocks for customers. And having had a few conversations with retail experts like yourself, both in the business and academic worlds, I hear a common opinion that a consumer is always evolving and that we are expecting to see a different behavior from consumers. I want to hear your thoughts on that and whether you think the same way. Consumers are always evolving. Consumers are always changing. Their tastes change their income economic situation change. As they move through their life stages, they change. So what was maybe once important to someone in their 20s is not as important in their 40s and something's very different in their 60s. And so there's always change going on with consumers. Obviously, this situation causes consumers to think perhaps more about security and safety than they might have before. I think we will see retailers rewarded who are very serious about how they show up for customers in terms of offering them safety and security. 
hygiene, disinfecting, all of that, as well as this idea that consumers seem to be changing now to being much more interested in knowing where their products are coming from, if they're coming from across the country or across the globe or just across town. There's more interest in shopping locally. Certainly in the organic food space, we've seen a long-term trend towards people wanting to know the ethics in which their food was brought to them. And I think we'll just continue to see that expand outward. There'll be ongoing emphasis on the ethical sourcing of their product. And it's not just going to be food. It's also going to have an impact on things like fast fashion retailers. So here in the U.S., we saw Forever 21 file for bankruptcy. I think fast fashion is on the wane. I think customers are starting to be tired of that and that there is going to be more of an emphasis on less goods, but higher quality for a significant portion of the population. Diving a little deeper into the topic of benefits of having offline and online channels that we have graced the surface of earlier, when it comes to offline channels specifically, customers often suffer from the tyranny of choice. When we want to simply buy a new toothpaste, we look down endless aisles of similar looking packages with more than two handfuls of brands offering essentially similar benefits. So what would the world look like if, let's say, we only had five critical cornerstone SKUs for each product category? Would this be of any benefit to the customers and the businesses? You know, I've been thinking about that a lot, that much of this disruption that we're seeing has to do with the breadth of assortment that retailers believe they have to carry to meet every niche and to honestly take advantage of every vendor's offer because vendors come through with quote unquote innovative new items. There's tens of thousands of new SKUs put into the market every year. And those new SKUs come with big fat new product introductory marketing funds that retailers can't turn down. And in fact, it doesn't very often build out any new demand from customers. And so the concept of what we're seeing right now, where there's these big out of stocks, has got retailers thinking about maybe they should pull back on the breadth of their assortment and instead go deep on some critical cornerstone skews that they're going to stand for and that they're going to make sure that they're always in stock on. If customers really want those niche items, there's always the opportunity to switch to an online channel, whether they're going to do that and purchase it online from a retailer or purchase it online directly from the manufacturer. So I think that just because a retailer makes a decision that they're going to pull back on the breadth of their assortment that they offer in stores, it doesn't necessarily mean consumers are going to have less choice. They might have less choice at that store, 
but they can always go find that item online. And I think there's more and more expectation from consumers that they can easily find unique items when they wish online. For retailers, it could mean that they're going to become much more efficient if they could in fact get their supply chain and get their operations and get all of their in-store merchandising focused on less SKUs that matter more. I'd like to think that the long tail of any product can always be found online and that retailers can focus more on bringing basics that they carry deep amounts of stock on, and they can always pepper in a lot of fun seasonal items to continue to keep the store looking fresh. You know, nobody likes going shopping in a boring store. They always want to kind of see some new things. And if they do a good job of staying in stock on the basics, which will drive people into the store, then they can have those high margin seasonal impulse items throughout the store that turn really fast, that don't get replenished because they're one and done, they're gone when gone kind of items, and they can keep the store looking interesting and fun for people to shop. I think to my own detriment, I'm definitely one of those people that just likes to come into a store and browse and read every label and see what's out there, whether it is a bottle shop and I'm reading every wine label or a grocery (laughs) store or a pet store. Well, I think shopping is a form of entertainment. Yeah. So how does this translate into the impact on smaller and local retailers that don't have the big budgets to compete against giants? How can they survive and what can we do as communities to support those businesses and help promote a healthier economic environment? I am a huge champion of local independent retailers. There's nothing I love more than seeing a really well-run locally owned store. And I think that what is critical for independent locally run stores is that they have to provide customer service better than the big national brands. And they have to understand their value to their customer. Too many times I see local retailers who want to carry national brands and they want to compete on price the same way that a Walmart or a Walgreens or a Home Depot competes on price. And that simply is not how they're going to succeed and why their customers are going to reward them. Customers are going to reward local independent retailers because they have products they can't find anywhere else, because they know their name and they have a relationship with them, and because it's an enjoyable experience when they go into the store that a big box retailer cannot recreate. And so What I think for those independent retailers is to understand what is their strength. And their strength is not that they have a deep multinational supply chain 
and that they can do product development and some of these other things that only a large retailer can do. Their strength is that they know the community. They should be involved in the community. They're there at the Memorial Day parades and they're there when the kids graduate from high school and they're involved in their local charities and they're so visible to their community that the community will make sure that they reward them with their business because they're such an integral part of the community. Local retailers need to get out of their shop. I always say to local store owners, you should not be in your store. You should be outside of your store. You need to have a good store manager who can run your store. And then you need to be outside your store as much as possible because you will thrive based on the relationships that you build. And for us as consumers, we need to understand that local shopkeepers cannot always have the lowest price. If you want to have the benefits of having a local market at the corner, then you can't decide that you're not going to shop at that market because they are 25 cents higher on a can of soup than what you could get if you drove 20 miles away to a big box retailer. You need to understand that there's a, a relationship there and what that shopkeeper needs is they need to be able to pay the rent. They need to be able to keep local people employed and that they don't have the big infrastructure that give them the economies of scale that a big retailer does. And so local shoppers need to say, that's important to me. I'm willing to spend $5 more on these tennis shoes or sneakers because I wish to have a shoe store that is in my local market that employs the local kids from school. It's kind of a two-way street. Retailers who are local and independent need to not operate like the big players. They need to be friendly. They need to have great products. They need to be involved in their community. And we as shoppers need to say that's important enough to us that we're willing to not just price shop them over and over and over. And I think it's fairly easy or straightforward, I would rather say, to understand the magnitude of the impact that AI solutions can have on bigger players solely because of the size of them, right? But do you think there's place to employ AI solutions for smaller businesses and smaller players? Would it be beneficial for them? I think that when you say smaller players who can use AI, it is difficult to see that as a single store owner. But I think if you're talking about smaller chains, a chain of seven stores, a chain of 15 stores, could they use AI? Absolutely, they could benefit from it. Can they afford it is another question. And there's a way to say yes. So they can't afford it if they need to have that AI embedded within their own IT and IT support team. It's going to be very, very difficult for them to do anything more than very rudimentary kind of analysis. But to the degree that they can belong to somebody who's offering AI 
and a subscription basis on a SaaS basis, software as a solution, subscribing to something that where the AI is a little bit more generically focused, it's in the cloud, and then they can feed it their own data and come back with insights that they can then deploy in their organization. I think AI can make a difference for smaller players, for those who are willing to try a different way of getting their analytic needs met, more of an on-demand kind of solution service instead of saying, oh, I need to build out a big IT infrastructural initiative with all of this these different data platforms in order to be able to benefit from AI. Time and time again in this podcast, we talked about the importance of customer service and disruptive technology like artificial intelligence being deployed for retail solutions. I would like to remind you that Flora kindly offered you to get a chapter from her book, Retail Second Oldest Profession, for free. All you have to do is go to her website, floradelaney.com, and you can request that chapter and get it the very same day. Similarly, if you want to learn more about Hybrid Promote, the artificial intelligence tool that Flora described in this podcast, you can navigate to hybrid.com and request a demo. Both of these opportunities are too good to pass on, so thank you all for joining us today. Stay tuned, and till the next time, everyone.